Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Paul Massey as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Paul is joining me live here in our New York studios. Paul is the CEO of B6 Real Estate Advisors, which was started in July of 2018. B6 provides commercial real estate owners, stakeholders with the next generation to optimize their investments taking a holistic approach, empowering every client with an agent expertise, technology-forward insights, and a team-oriented culture. The name is short for building by building, block by block. Paul began his career at CBRE and soon became the head of the market research department in Midtown Manhattan and later an investment sales broker. You may recognize Paul's name from the well-known Massey Knackle Realty Services, a company he founded with his colleague, Robert Knackle, whom he met at CBRE and previous guest on this podcast, episode 40. The company became the New York metropolitan area's dominant commercial investment sales brokerage firm with over 225 employees serving more than 200,000 property owners. In 2014, they sold Massey Knackle to Cushman Wakefield. And very cool, in 2017, Paul ran for mayor of New York City against Bill de Blasio. Paul, thank you so much for being my guest here on the podcast. Christian, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I, um, I've i never told this story. I wonder if my wife even remembers this, but um, in in but researching you and, and hearing about the fact that you ran for mayor, uh, over 20 years ago, when I was lived, when we lived in New York City, I lived downtown. I remember going to a voting booth and voting, and every single council person that was on the the docket ran unopposed. And I thought to myself, "Wow, um, this stinks." There's like you, you, everyone just gets reelected automatically. I should <laughs> run against Shelley Silver. <laughs> and I, it was just a random idea. I, I wanted to go into politics for about 30 seconds. Mm. And I went to a couple meetings. I did some networking. I found out where to go. And I got to the point where I could, I figured out how to get myself on the ballot. I had to get a certain amount of signatures, all this sort of stuff. And then when I realized how expensive it was going to be, how much time it was going to take, and then I was, you know, I was under 30 years old. I had absolutely no shot whatsoever. Um, I gave it up. So and that was that was my uh, that was my foray into politics. But you actually ran for mayor. What motiv- motivated you to to go into politics and wanting to run? Well, we had just sold our business um, and um, was trying to figure out next steps. Um, looking back at it, we had eight years of Rudy Giuliani um, and then surprisingly followed up by 12 years of Michael Bloomberg. So we had really um, 20 years of leadership, strong leadership, completely different people and different styles. But the city was was in 
pretty strong hands. And then um, I didn't feel the same way about um, the then mayor. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it as um, a fantastic opportunity to do a lot of good. I think big city mayors have real control and real power. Yeah. And I, I kind of viewed it hopefully a little bit the way Michael Bloomberg did as a, as a great CEO job. I mean, yeah. 53 city departments, 330,000 employees, um, real influence over our public school system, which is a real, you know, uh, focus of mine. Mm -hmm. And um, and and I thought we should be able to create a lot of jobs and be pro business, pro big business, pro small business. And um, I actually loved running for office. The whole experience was really? great. I wish it had worked out and you never know. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I honestly, I think probably everyone wishes it worked out. Mr. Blasey was <laughs> get a terrible mayor. <laughs> also, I also appreciate Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, we had a we had a contract uh, for three years after we sold our business and Cushman kind of heard a little bit about me dabbling around thinking about doing this. And they sat me down and they said, we love this. It's community minded service. It's leadership. Um, it's not going to do us any harm on the PR side. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so they amended my contract saying I didn't have to come to work anymore if I ran for office. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. It was, it was, it was actually great, genuine support. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't expect that from a, a, a giant company they, like that. There was a there was a management team in there that really cared. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So kind of switching gears uh, into sort of the, <clears throat> the purpose of the podcast. Um, uh, in the process of selling property, which you've done for the majority of your career, um, or if someone's looking to purchase property, do you ever involve an architect? Oh yeah. Well, a lot of the. Um a lot of the buildings that we sell, we're, we're very specifically on the seller representation side. So every every purchaser has an architect. So we're constantly dealing with them, figuring out the vision for whatever property their their client is hoping to buy. Okay. So they're they're a constant in our life and a presence, and um, we enjoy working with them. Um, are, are there any particular ones that you you enjoy working with the most? I think one of my favorites is Brad Perkins, who just who just walked out, of, <laughs> who just great. walked out of here. It's true. I've done some work uh, with him on uh, um, uh, a, a non for profit that I was involved with, the Tenement Museum, and he he dedicated his service to them. And wow. um, it was we worked with him for quite an extended period of time. So I'm a fan. Just wow. the first one that pops to my mind. I don't know why. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about architects? Hmm. Um, sometimes um, I think they can, it, occasionally they might take a while to get with the vision of the client. And you see that friction a little bit where They'll come in with uh, projecting what what they think might happen with the building, and you watch the adjustment between them and the client. And uh, the the better ones are really great listeners. Right. No, that's a great answer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I, I could see that. Uh, as far as you know, you're you're in the position a lot. I would assume to recommend architects. How how do how do we architects? How do we get on? your radar? How do we get on brokers' radars? How do we kind of get more involved in the commercial real estate world so that we can be a resource for 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 you all in the real estate world? Well, I think um, specialization is always a great thing. That probably goes for anybody in any business, mm -hmm. uh, the more specialized you are, so that if we understand that an architect has 
uh, a talent in multifamily development. Um, and again, depending on what the project is, would recommend someone we know has a skill set there. So I think the more that an architect can identify themselves as having a specialty, I know your firm has uh, multiple specialties, which is a great thing. Um, but if we know that you're in that space, we'll recommend you. Got it. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And then how can we help you do your job better? What, what do you need from us that, that makes you, whether it's close a deal or, you know, get a, get in front of the, a, a particular client, how, how can we help you? So, so a commercial real estate broker in my mind is really a marketing agent, right? So since we're always on the sell side, uh, we're really marketing a property. And oftentimes we have a vision of what, you know, might be the highest and best use. And we we lean on architects to bring that to life um, without without building it. So that's right. a big uh, benefit to us. And um, we're not afraid to promote the architect when they do that for us. Yeah, I always tell the, the, the brokers that I'm friendly with or even those when I meet, you know, hey, anything I can do, if it's a test fit, if it's a programming thing, if it's a new building zoning or, or a massing study, whatever I can do to help you all get a, you know, ultimately get the building or get the job, whatever that might be. And if you can turn around and, you know, give me a shot at the actual project, that's all I can ask for, you know, and it's, yeah, it seems to work pretty well. We spend a ton of our time doing a similar thing where we, uh, a lot of people need to know what their property are worth. You, 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 you can't look online to see the value of the building necessarily. Um, so we give that away. Yep. And that, that goodwill comes washing back yep. sometimes years out, but it works. Yeah, it's a long game process for mm, sure, yeah. especially on a new building. We could do a zoning study and years later we hear that, you know, they've effectively changed the, you mm. know, changed the the zoning and and now they can do they went from manufacturing to residential or whatever that might be. That just happened on a on a project in fact. So, yeah, it's a long it's a long game there. Um, so you and I met for lunch a few a few months back, um, and when I told you I had had your former partner on the show, Bob Knackle, um, you said I need to come on and and add to that story and <laughs> and uh, and have some fun. And so, are you and your former business partner still friendly? Best friends. You are. That's yeah. great to hear. We uh, we had five years, a little less, five, five years at CBRE, mm -hmm. starting out as kids. Literally, we were both in college. Uh, working for them coincidentally didn't know each other in our respective hometowns um, mm. and then we had 26 years of Massey Knackle so really 30 plus years um, and um, we had fun every single one of those years that's great yeah. <laughs> and so I know like with my business partners um, there are things that that we all individually do well you know I do certain things well um, <clears throat> You know, uh, some of my partners do other things better than me, for sure. There are things that I don't like to do that I know that I rather them do because they do it better. Um, and I think that's healthy in a, in a partnership, for sure. Um, what made you and Bob great partners over those years? Well, we started off in the same place. We gr both grew up super modestly. And um, so we were we kind of wanted the same thing. And um, early days, we very quickly shook hands and informally partnered at CB. So we split everything we did together. Hmm. I think we were the youngest people at the company at the time. And we thought, uh, well, let's volunteer for investment sales. They were looking for investment sales brokers to differentiate ourselves from the leasing brokers. But so we started out. And then um, 
probably before we were too young to know any better, we, we got frisky and went and started our own company. <laughs> and, uh, and over the years, I don't think we even noticed it as much, but we drifted to different things within the company. I um, loved kind of the day-to-day management thing. Bob didn't, uh, <laughs> but, but, but was a super, super broker, super salesman. So he was an engine that drove the firm. And um, so we, I, I think there was, there was magic in us kind of growing a little bit apart, but, you know, picking up, you know, symbiotic talents and chores and duties. And um, he's also like, way smarter than I am. And, you know, the Wharton School, the three-dimensional chess, photographic memory. Um, (laughs) So we would have meetings once a week and I would be filling him in on the good and the bad. And um, and I was pretty, pretty disciplined about doing that. And most of the time he was bouncing around wanting to get out of those meetings. (laughs) And uh, but once in a while, he'd say, you know, if you push that lever, you're going to get hit in the side of the head from over here. And you don't even realize that you might be doing that. And, you know, so he he saved me from a whole bunch of strategic (laughs) blunders, uh, I'm sure. Did you guys know that you were both so entrepreneurial kind of coming out of school and at CBRE? Or did this just sort of happen? CB had a lot of great things like uh, a focus on specialization, like ultra specialization. They, they had leasing territories. They had sales territories. They had um, people sticking to a discipline. And, and we kind of both liked that a lot. Um, but occasionally they'd break out. I mean, it's very hard to manage some business that big where, you know, someone might fly into town from Beverly Hills and represent someone buying a building on Madison Avenue, not including us. That was our territory. <laughs> and that just drove us nuts because not only did we not get a chance to add value, um, it just kind of busted up our concept of we should be very concrete with how these territories work and how we share information and how we share money. And so that kind of that boiled our blood a little bit and um, and kind of pushed us to want to, you know, just do our own thing. Can you explain the difference between, you know, the the different types of brokers, right? You were, you're the sales side. Yeah. Right? You sold properties. Um, and then there are the leasing brokers. Mm-hmm. And there's usually the tenant rep brokers. Can mm-hmm. you explain kind of the difference between all that? Because I'm not sure even a lot of architects understand the difference. Well, there, there's there are so many jobs under the heading of commercial real estate broker (laughs) you know i mean there are appraisers there are asset managers property managers under the under the brokerage arm there are investment sales brokers so people who sell buildings there are leasing office leasing specialists there are retail uh, leasing specialists and within say retail leasing there are specialists to do restaurants and Mm -hmm. um other types of retail um so the there are, there are just so many angles on, on our business and so many different types of brokers. And what gravitated you towards the sales side? I think it was just that thing. It was a little bit of happenstance where we arrived at CB. We were very young. They were talking about wanting people to sell buildings. I think they probably envisioned selling the AT&T building or the IBM building. But we were young, really young, 24. And we knew that they wanted us to gain control and be 
they, they uh, encouraged us to be in the sell side, but the only thing that anyone would let us have control of is small buildings, not big buildings. <laughs> right. So we got into the small to mid-sized building game by default. But you eventually got to the big buildings, right? <clears throat> yeah, I think we probably specialized in the uh, 2 million to 200 million range, which is which was great for us because that's 85% of all buildings yeah. in New York City. There, the people, this is a big market. This is a much bigger market than the second biggest market, which is Chicago, but there are 200,000 investment properties in New York City. There are apartment buildings, office buildings, store buildings, yeah. industrial buildings. It's a it's a massive market. Yeah, yeah, it is a huge market. And you're right. When you, you think of New York City, you think of the big buildings. But as you walk around, it's a lot <clears> of little buildings yep. all over the place. And yep. and, which is and, great. And we do a lot of that, too, where we're trying to combine buildings, you know, take them down, put up larger buildings. It's always uh, it's always fun to, to do those sort of things. So so at the end of the day um, at Massey Knackle, you you ended up with. Um, over 225 employees, you know, servicing over 200,000 property owners, um, you know, number one uh, sales firm uh, for 14 years. Um, just an amazing, obviously, success story. Did you see it? You know, what was that like? What was that experience like as you were kind of it was growing and growing and growing? And now all of a sudden you were the premier in this world. Well, we were an overnight success after 26 years. It did. We were we were such a cliche in the sense that in the early days, really, I know exactly when it was. It was the first 12 years um, from 88 to 2000. Uh, we would add a broker here and there, but there was no, you know, we knew we wanted to grow, but then we were so happy. You know, you've seen those business school books where the baker is in the bake shop working in the bake shop and not working on the bake shop. Yep. Yep. That was us. Yep. And we were happy. We were we were yep. transacting. We were making a living. But the company was small. And the um, um, the the, uh, the with a small services business in New York City, there aren't any big profits to speak of. Mm -hmm. So we got more and more frustrated and then a national company came in town. I think our gross revenues in 2000 were around $5 million and they offered us $6 million. And we said, why are you overpaying? And they said, <laughs> we are overpaying. We uh, are trying to go public. Wall Street's giving us a hard time about not having capital markets or building sales in New York City. Mm -hmm. And you guys have a good reputation. So out of frustration, we agreed to take $6 million. And the minute we did that, we were we realized it was probably a mistake for us. All our dreams and aspirations were gone. Uh, and we were sitting there trying to figure out how do we unshake their hand. And we're handshake guys. So there is really no way to unshake someone's hand. But just at that moment, before the deal was papered and closed, the stock market threw up all over itself. The go public multiples changed. And they came to us and said that we're going to we're not going to buy you. We're just going to open up a little satellite in New York City. And um, they were really weirded out about how happy we were. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, OK, no more talk, all action. If you wow. really want to grow this business, let's get a recruiting director. If you're going to recruit on mass, let's uh, have a training director. It, Paul's doing the books on the dining room table on Sunday afternoon instead of playing with the kids. Let's get a controller. And from from roughly 2000, once we get through 9-11 in 01 uh, to 2007, 
you know, we probably made a bunch of mistakes, but the market was so hot. Uh, what happened right after 9-11, which was, you know, emotional for everyone and everyone has their their story about that. Um, but interest rates tanked. So property values skyrocketed. Our, our revenue went from five million to 57 million in a wow. six year period. So then and we had a, you know, not a huge business, but we had a nice business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great that's a great story about selling and, mm. and getting out of it at the last. Thank minute. goodness. Yeah. That's a, so that is one of the hardest things is for the baker to get out of the, the bakery. Right. And and absolutely. And because all your muscle memory is sell, sell, sell. And we were happy. Yeah, we were happy. We didn't say we're really super frustrated. It built the frustration built. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's extraordinary. So you eventually sell the company to Cushman mm -hmm. way down the line. Obviously, mm -hmm. when it mm -hmm. had tremendous value. Um, what what prompted that? I think um, the partners, there were, there were 10 partners. I think they were thinking about a liquidity event. I think uh, Bob, I remember I had a conversation with Bob. He's the most absolutely polite person in the world. Uh, but he, he kind of had a sense. He, he thought maybe we'd sell in 07 at the last top of the market. I, I was probably slightly emotional for a brief moment and talked him out of that. <laughs> but the... Um, but we kind of knew at some point um, that a liquidity event would be good. So he he said to me, you know, and this was probably two years earlier. He said, you know, in 2014, you're going to be 54 years old. Everyone's going to think you're a hotshot manager. Um, if we wait until you're 70, which is what I think you probably want to do, <laughs> we will. I don't know. what I don't know. I don't know about that. And I said to myself, you know, if he has to ask me a third time, um, that probably isn't going to be good. And I think you owe a debt of loyalty to a 50% partner. So we agreed to sell. It was, you know, ridiculously good timing. It was beneficial to Cushman. Okay. Immensely beneficial to them because they didn't have a real strong capital markets group in New York. So okay. that that helped them. And we didn't know it at the time. They they were contemplating a sale of the whole business. So that really helped them. And bolstered them, the multiples yeah. that they paid us and the multiples that were tra trending at the time put a really good valuation on the whole company. So the the then owner of Cushman got, you know, a real benefit from that transaction that it was, you know, was hard to see unless you really know behind the scenes what was happening. Yep. So, and then you leave Cushman, uh, ultimately I assume your contract ended. Yeah. And- well, When um, politics ended, um, contract ended. Okay. And was thinking about something like we're doing now with B6. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about B6. What What is the technology side of it? How does it function? What makes it different from, from what you did previously? You, you always have to have something where you're hopefully changing the world a little bit, something you're passionate about. I think we want to uh, build a business where there's a robust debt brokerage arm attached to it. That's, that's a that's a difference. We had a good debt team at MK, but we hadn't really built it out. I'd like to see that built out. Okay. Um, the tech side for us are two things. It's We have a custom CRM system. So because we, every one of our agents works in a defined sub-market or territory, which is great because they know it well and they can execute better. Um, but the, but they're all, they, they each have their own business within the business. So the CRM system that we have shares all data on every client. Um, so we know what we're talking, you know, who we're talking to, 
um, and can share that information openly because our people don't compete with each other, okay. which is really neat. Yeah. And, and I, I think completely unique to the industry. So that part of technology is great. We're also focusing on um, what really is an arcane and inefficient sale process from significantly from the legal side, but okay. also just the entire sale process. And I think um, getting back to Massinaco, one of the great things we did is we collected a lot of data at MK because we had a lot of boots on the, on the ground and they fed us sale comps, development comps, land values. Um, we published that information and gave it away to the marketplace for free. Okay. So that made us the trusted authority about the business we ended up having a big lucky market share in. So it was kind of a second moat around the business. So it was very daunting for people to think about competing with that. Hmm. Uh, I think, but we always knew there'd be a Reonomy or an RCA or a company that was going to give this information away for, you know, not, not a terribly expensive amount of money. So we had a 10 year head start on that. So that was good. So we think our business is going to be accelerated by technology okay. where a war room can have everything a buyer could need to know in one place, including a PSA that, that's standardized and a lot of lawyers, a lot of attorneys would like to use or would be willing to be on either side of it. Um, title reports, environmental reports, so that, I mean, think of a world where someone could approach us and say, I've got three days left on my 1031 exchange. And um, we show them a couple of dozen properties that we've pre-certified mm -hmm. where they can quickly understand and know exactly what they're getting and not make a mistake about what they're buying. Yeah. So I think that acceleration is going to happen. I think other people are thinking about it and working on it. But we're, we're, we've got such a, a, a sizable platform that we can probably do that. And, you know, again, um, I, I think it's really important for whatever business you're in, whether you're an architect or a real estate broker or, or anybody, um, to set yourself up so when technology happens, you're smiling. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> you're actually in our technology lab here in our, yeah. in our firm. So I, I agree 100%. It's um, not only for us, is it in our mind, we're, we're catapulting the industry forward in the way that we've connected design and construction documents and visualization and our, and our clients all within one platform. Um, but we're, we're, it's a great sales tool for us too. If we show up and we, we show up and we show what we can do, we can do what a normal architect does in, in three weeks, we can do in three hours. It's a home run every time. I mean, we, mm. we, you know, we hit it out of the park. So I, I totally agree. Um, a little bit about your backstory. Where'd you grow up? What did you want to be when you were growing up? Where'd you go to college? Grew up in Boston, uh, a great place to grow up. Um, all my friends up there think New York's very cool, but I think being able to get to skiing in an hour or the Cape in an hour is a really good thing. My whole family I came from a big Irish Catholic family. So I think I have a relative in every town up there. <laughs> um, I went to a, a fantastic high school, the Roxbury Latin school which was a day school in the city of Boston, uh, the oldest school in the country, 1645. Okay. Um, but w the coolest thing about it was it had a significant endowment. It had some very successful, generous alums. So at the time, Boston was the city of brotherly hate where uh, there was federally mandated busing. 
every town was significantly probably a one-way street. Um, and Roxby Latin took a couple of kids from every town, threw us all together. Huh. So if you had any biases, which many of us did, me included, you had to lose them pretty fast. Otherwise, you weren't going to survive. Wow. So it was fantastic training for, A, first a good education. Um, Latin almost was my undoing. But... Um, <laughs> but but really great training if you think about it for being in the the rainbow that's New York yeah right so yeah. that was great um, I went to school in upstate New York to Colgate because huh. it had my sport which was wrestling huh. uh, ended up having a, a great experience there and then um, the segue to real estate was I was involved with the fraternity and there was an alum who was supposed to come around and make sure we weren't burning the house down once in a while and um, he asked me what I was doing for the summer, and I bragged that I was manning a shovel for one of my dad's contractor buddies for 10 bucks an hour, which was all the money then, like a lot of money, <laughs> yeah, yeah. cash money. And he said, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and he, he was a national accounts officer at CBRE. Oh, wow. And he said, I'm going to get you a job doing our data bank, which is the tenant tracking system they had at the time. And they would send college kids out to walk up and down buildings and tell them where the, where the, where the tenants were. Oh, wow. And I did that and I loved it. And I saw um, there was a guy named Rob Griffin who was sitting next to me two years out of B.C. and killing it. Um, he's <laughs> now the CEO in Newmark uh, in New England. And um, so he was my role model. Uh, once I saw him and how happy he was and what he was doing, yeah. I just had to I had to work there. And, and how did you get down to New York City? Yeah, the the boss of the Boston office was. Uh, he was a grouchy guy who I um, who, who told me there was no way he was going to roll the dice on college kid. He, he had a mature office. He had one opening and he had an IBM computer salesman and a Xerox copier salesman. Those were the two hot sales jobs at the time. And he uh, said, I'm going to pick one of them and uh, I've got nothing for you, kid. So I was crushed because I so loved CB. I was also a terrible student where I wasn't going to get the Goldman Sachs job competing with my classmates. So I went back to my fraternity connection, the national accounts officer. And he said, well, that's the bad news. The good news is we're brand new in New York City and they'll take anybody down there. And <laughs> being so qualified, my grand plan was go to New York for six months, nine months, work my tail off, convince them how great I was and talk them into giving me the job that I thought I wanted back in Boston. Right. The manager who rejected me ended up being the, the grand poobah of the East Coast. You get a high level management job. And one day he knocks on my desk at, uh, in, in, at CB in New York and says, I guess I screwed up. Right. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, 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 no. I owe you. I owe you everything. <laughs> uh, that's great. And I heard you're an amateur boxer. Is that true? Mm, I've always had some that's some cool. sport to play with this. Uh, Busted my fingers up lately. I'm into uh, jujitsu. A couple of us in the office are being trained by a great young guy who uh, um, is uh, it, it. We have a lot of fun with. We uh, jujitsu is a great skill that builds upon itself. So mm -hmm. You learn you learn moves, you learn uh, techniques, and when you walk out of the class, you realize you've also had a fantastic workout. Oh, I'm sure. So I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. really fun. So let, let's talk a little bit about. Um, real estate today. Um, <clears throat> I'm friends with uh, uh, a lot of real estate developers and some family friends that have developed real estate. And um, <clears throat> how 
how bad is the state of commercial real estate today? And it's funny, I, I kind of prepped for this over the last couple of days. And this morning on CNBC, I heard Howard uh, Lutnick today say that um, everything's going to be great by the beginning of next year. Um, that you know the, the interest rates are are now going to be stuck where they are, and everyone will adjust, and everything's going to be great, and not to worry, and that kind of thing. So, what is your take on the state of commercial real estate today? Well, Howard Lutnick's a super smart guy, so if he thinks interest rates are stabilizing, I'm 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 willing to be a believer. <laughs> I'm willing to be a believer. I think it I, the way I'm looking at it, it's by asset class because okay. we've been through we've been through it here. Mm -hmm. Right. We had 2019 rent regulations that basically mm -hmm. say you can't raise your rents and you can't fix up your buildings. I mean, which is not so don't get me started. Right. Um, and then I thought that retail had bottomed out significantly due to technology and was went through a radical shift pre COVID. And then amazingly, we were wrong that retail tanked some more. Mm -hmm. um, so that's I, I think the. Manhattan re retail especially is significantly linked linked to the office segment sure and the office segment is has n I don't think anyone predicted how long people would be out of the office uh, post covid and how much work from home would slow down the the reentry into the market for people yeah but um, I think it's a fad. I, I can't believe it's lasted this long. I think people, you know, if you look at the most successful CEOs in New York City, the Jamie Dimons, the Ken Griffiths, the people who are, you know, rallying their troops to come back, they know how important it is to be together as a team. Yep. And um, and so I think those smart people are, um, are going to make sure that we all get back to work and other companies will, will follow that model. And um, I think two years from now, we're going to be having a completely different outlook on the office market. It's it's rough, very rough now. Yeah. And the I think the lending market's significantly frozen up, which yeah. makes things even more difficult. And so um, but I think it's New York City. And I think that two years from now, everyone's going to be back. No, no one will even have a memory of how rough this was right now. But it's going to take it's going to take some real hard work to get get things in order on the office side. Yeah. And I mean, I talk about this all the time. I'm big on it on LinkedIn and I get a lot of traction with this. I've been a big proponent of coming back to the office for a myriad of reasons. One is that it's important, I think, for the culture of any company to be in the office. Mm. Um, and we've, we've done a good job here at Mancini Duffy to get it, get, get us to where we are. And it's made a huge difference being back in the office. The other is just for New York itself. I mean, as a duty to New York to be here to, to support the, all of the retail, to support the restaurants, to have that day-to-day -day traffic. Um, and, and I do believe you do better work at, in an office. Look, <laughs> it's New York. You can have 10 meetings a day. Where can you do that? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a market 10 times the size of most cities. It's fantastic. Can you explain what it means uh, for building owners to not be able to refinance their debt? Yeah. So if um, and why this is a big deal coming up? Well, there are multiple things going on, right? Peep, um, the lending climate is, um, you know, is significantly frozen up because banks are uh, banks are worried that, you know, with, with the banks that have failed, a lot of those were, uh, you know, I'm generalizing, but a lot of those were 
predicated on bad real estate bets, mm-hmm. right? Lending um, too long and too uh, at, at, at rates that aren't going to hold up with interest rates that increase. Um, so I think most lenders are being very, very cautious right now. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, we're minus three significant banks in that affect, you know, to some degree, New York City. Um, yeah. So I think that... Um, if values have dropped by, you know, 20 or 30%, when you've got a loan maturity, you're going to have a loan to value problem. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to need more equity to reset a loan on the property. So people are struggling with that. Mm -hmm. Interest rates are up. Mm -hmm. So the payment's going to be higher. So your, 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 your debt coverage ratios are all out of whack. So, um, I think it's going to be a super challenging time. For, uh, so why is a building worth less all of a sudden, let's say, where I guess it's not all of a sudden. It really is the last three years and with due to COVID. So let's say I have a typical office building and now for whatever reason, it's only 50 percent full. Does that mean it's lost 50 percent of its value? No. I, well, buildings have replacement <clears throat> co- value, too. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you've got cash flow that's diminished by 50 percent, nobody's going to lend you the same amount that they did two right. years ago. So. That that's that's the real driver of this. If the values are momentarily down, you're going to have a very difficult time resetting your loan. Right. But it doesn't mean everybody has to reset. It just means that it depends on your timing. No, but most commercial loans are five years, okay. max seven years. OK, so the reset ha- comes at comes you quick. pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can see that. But so in your mind, are there opportunities in a market like this? People that have. Tons of cash on the sidelines. Of course, if you believe what I believe, <clears throat> you'd go out and buy a vacant giant office building um, <laughs> or, or find a partner who wants to do the same thing. And we have a lot of clients who are in that boat. They're they're out there. Yeah. Um, yep. Barry Sternlich from Starwood was was in the press today saying he's ready. Mm-hmm. I think smart people like that will uh, will be jumping in. Yeah, and we have and it won't be long. Oh, that's good. That's good to know, because we have clients in the same boat where they are. They've got strong balance sheets. They don't do much. I mean, they obviously finance their debt when they, you know, in certain circumstances, but they have plenty of cash on the sidelines Mm -hmm. and they're going out and they're buying, you know, office parks and they want to repurpose them and or they're buying buildings adjacent to a building that they already own because they know they could build a parking deck and then, you know, redevelop this thing as a residential or something like that. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, how can architects figure out where those opportunities are and who those people are? Well, I think, um, again, if an architect has a passion for um, office I, uh, or, or retail development like your firm does, I, I think that we can identify who's buying in the market. As a, as a company, we're out there and, and good real estate brokers will help you with this. We can okay. tell you who's active buying in the market now that that's a very important thing to know yeah um right now especially yep so we as a as a team we're sharing that information that's a topic of our upcoming uh sales meeting next week where we're going to be discussing in in each sub market who's a buyer right so we're happy to share that information with you great is there anything sort of post-covid that um building owners should be doing to their buildings, assuming they can afford it? Uh, are there amenities that uh, you see buildings 
needing right now as opposed to you know pre-COVID? I think as it relates to COVID, probably probably I think we're we're over that. But mm-hmm. I think there's been a huge uh, move towards amenities for office tenants um, to lure people back. Okay. And and why not? I mean, we live there. We live in these buildings. Why wouldn't we have community space? Why wouldn't we have, you know, gyms or, um, you know, have been common, but restaurants, um, mm-hmm. all, all kinds of things. Yeah. I think some of the major projects that you see really rely on luring people back with amenities. And what's wrong with that? Yeah, I agree. It's a great place. To, I mean, think about where we had lunch, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole complex is amazing. Yep. And they dedicated a ton of space to just the public, basically, mm-hmm. which is uh, pretty extraordinary for a you know for real estate for-profit mm-hmm. real estate developer. So yeah, that's one pen. They've done a fantastic job with that. <laughs> um, so a couple more questions. Um, so I, I I do get annoyed with sort of the constant reports that New York City itself is just you know terrible, right? It's dirty. It's always been dirty. Right. There's homeless. There's always been homeless or it's it's not safe. I think um, it's not as great as it was, um, you know, back uh, several years ago in terms of that. Uh, But the tourism is back. The restaurants are back. The nightlife is back. I mean, you know, you can't get into a restaurant there. It's so crowded. All of that is sort of booming. Um, If you were mayor. (laughs) What would you do to turn to really begin to turn the corner for for New York City? What would be the the things that you would you would change right now? Well, look, look, I think Eric Adams, uh, Mayor Adams, I mean, he's a cop. Like, so I think he's got a completely different relationship with the police force. And I think you can feel that. I think the city feels safer. Mm -hmm. I think he's also got empathy for homeless people and he's probably not afraid to help them. Um, aggressively um, to, to get if, you know, if so many of them are suffering from mental health issues, um, I think he's trying to help them. And so those are two really fundamental things that have improved over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think they really needed to because um, that w- w- when things had deteriorated so much, we're such a center for tourism. I, I don't people felt very uncomfortable and just yeah. walking to work. Yeah. Um, so I think the quality of life has improved in New York. Um, we know what good quality of life looks like, right. thanks to, uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg. Yep. But um, another thing that I would focus on that people don't think about enough to, in, in my view is our public school system. Hmm. I mean, we have we have some good public schools in New York City, uh, but many of them are just not. And we there are one million kids in those schools. And imagine, imagine a place where um, we had a program like a Peace Corps where we attracted and we became the hot place to be a young teacher. I mean, th- think of how that could turn around yeah. the experience. And then you have a, a, a dynamic, educated workforce um, as a result of good public schools. Yeah. So then we're all of a sudden very, very appealing to major corporations who want to move here. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a workforce that's ready to work. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it's one thing after another. Those are the things I think about, about New York city, but I, that's a great, that's yeah. a great way. Yes. Bottom up kind of thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Fundamental. Yeah. Who, who doesn't want to think about, wouldn't it be great if most public schools were successful in helping kids? And yeah. 
Is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to tell our listeners? Hmm. I think we've talked about New York and what a great city is so much, but uh, believe it's going to be, um, we're going to be, we're going to get through our, our economic uh, struggle that we're momentarily in. It's always going to be New York. It's always the light to the moths. Even when the kids weren't coming to the office, they were swinging from the rafters down in the East <laughs> Village, having a great time. It's true. I don't think that's ever going to stop. I think kids are always going to want to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we're a city of immigrants, too. Mm-hmm. We're a city of immigrants. Um, we have a, a, a very diverse workforce at B6, at our new company, um, a lot of people have come to New York and appreciate what New York City is. And if you think about the world, how lucky we all are. Yeah, it's true. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. And thanks for sharing all your insights in commercial real estate um, and and helping shape New York uh, in all honesty. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, to see and read more about Paul, uh, you can visit the B6 Real Estate Advisors website and on Paul's LinkedIn, Paul Massey. So thank you so much. Thanks.